0: Can mothers become seahorse dads?
1: (laughs) Welcome to Answers News for Wednesday, January
2: 31st, 2024. In today's top story, a woman is shocked to discover she's pregnant, but why? <laughs> Hello, I'm Dr. Georgia Purdom, uh, here with Patricia Ingler and Rocket Wob Webb. And so let's get right into this trans man who had mastectomy, discovered to be five months pregnant, making rare seahorse dad. All right, so this is a story actually out of Italy, and we could entitle this a woman who had a mastectomy, because that's only possible for a woman. And it's obviously only possible for a woman to um, be pregnant. And um, yet um, they're acting like this is some major miracle thing that this woman has gotten pregnant but again it's because this woman was in the process of taking hormones to help and surgeries obviously to help transition transition her into a man only to discover that she was five months pregnant. Yeah,
1: so um, there's a real underlying worldview, not just uh, in this issue, but really across the board that you can keep an eye out for. So it basically says that people are their own creators and their own authority for truth. So you find that truth by looking inside yourself and seeing what your feelings are. And then the idea goes, you should be able to manipulate the world. It's just uh, raw material for you to be able to manipulate external reality in accordance with your inner truth. And that applies as well to biology. So um, that's different from the, the Bible's view that we are God's creatures made in God's image and he's the authority for truth. Mm-hmm. So it's something to watch out for really in a lot of issues, including abortion law, transhumanism, Marxism. It all goes back to this humans as self-creators idea.
0: Yeah, like Patricia said, it's this worldview basically feelings kind of trump all truth, you know, your truth, my truth, that whole thing. And essentially what they say is here that uh, this mother is going to be the child's biological mom, but be registered legally as a dad. If you're confused, don't worry, you're not alone. I'm confused as well. So I actually had to retitle like Georgia was saying here. Basically, a biological woman pretending to be a man had her breast removed, discovered she was five months pregnant, and now she's a mom. And the reason why that they're saying this is the so-called rare seahorse dad, if you guys know anything about seahorses, basically what happens is the, uh, the, the female seahorse will deposit her eggs inside the male's pouch, and then the male fertilizes the eggs inside the pouch. In other words, the male uh, gives birth, carries the, carries the embryo, gives birth, and so that's why they're trying to make that connection. But note that the male seahorse's don't still carry male. the eggs. They're still, mare- still males, so it's actually category error there. So that's what, what the whole thing is about. And what's interesting in this article too is they actually admit a lot of these hormones are actually going to be causing bad consequences during that first trimester here. It says it's, uh, if the halting of the therapy is not immediate, there could be consequences especially in the first trimester of pregnancy, which is an important time for the development of the baby's organs.
2: Yeah, it is. Uh, I hope the baby's okay. I sincerely do. I'm glad that this woman is deciding to go through with the pregnancy because Italy actually has very um, much more restrictive abortion laws than we do here in the United States, and so um, she would have to be under quote unquote um, psychological stress um, basically in order for them to say it's okay for her to have an abortion after um, 90 days. But apparently, we're thankful that she's still planning on going through this, through through with this and having the baby. But we do pray because obviously, I can't imagine a child in this situation. I mean, how confused would that be um, for this to be both your mom and your dad? Um, And so uh, we obviously need to pray for them. um, And and just, again, remember that God is the one that designed us. So he is the the one that has the right to define us. um, And he has defined us as male or female. Um, We don't get to pick and choose. That's God's good design for us. That's his plan and his purpose. And uh, we need to live that out. And, And we need to pray and have compassion on these people that are just very, very mixed up, very confused, and, and going through things which are essentially irreversible um, that they're doing to their bodies and, and very much harming them. So uh, it's easy to look at this and, you know, kind of, you know, that is sin, obviously, but they, they can receive repentance just like anyone else. And we need to try to help those people that are, that are caught in the sly.
0: Yeah, continue praying for this world. This world's basically lost its mind. We're seeing more evidence of a Romans 1 culture today, but that really should motivate us to keep preaching the gospel to every creature.
2: All right, unspeakable evil, medical student backs full-term abortion, vows to leave Wisconsin over restrictions. And so this is a medical student that was testifying um, in front of the Wisconsin, um, uh, at the state capitol, and she said, uh, and I think when somebody finds out in pregnancy, when how far along that they are, when someone finds out, they should be able to get an abortion if they want to, and for some people... That is full term. And she basically goes, so she's fine with abortion all the way up to full term. And she says, basically, if I can't get the training that I need in the state of Wisconsin to perform abortions, then I'm leaving the state. I'm not going to continue to be a doctor here. I'm going to go elsewhere where I can do this. It's just horrible. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a quote in here that really stood out to me, that it's worth breaking down some of what's going on here. So it quotes the Medical College of Wisconsin's website, saying that restricting access to reproductive care disproportionately affects our most vulnerable patients, erodes tr- the trust and sanctity of the patient-physician relationship, and criminalizes physicians, all of which negatively impacts the health of our community. Uh-huh. Okay, so something to watch out for. It's called a Mott in Bailey, where you take something that's hard to defend and reframe it in terms that are easy to defend, like reproductive care. But if you think about it, we don't ever think think of any other context of medicine as caring in the sense of being able to take someone else's life, mm-hmm. because it's helpful to you for some reason. Uh, so this isn't about caring, and it's also not about reproduction, it's about terminating a life right. that's already been Christ. reproduced, so it's not reproductive care. Um, if the healthcare system, as Rob has also pointed out, would be um, concerned about the most vulnerable patients, then it would be concerned about the preborn. so there's that issue. As far as the sanctity of the patient-physician relationship goes, that's ideally a covenantal relationship, so you recognize responsibilities involved, whereas what we're seeing now is more of this idea of a contract, so that a doctor is just someone that you contract out with skills who can manipulate biological reality to conform to your internal feelings-based idea of what truth is. So it goes back to that worldview we talked about. And I can promise society will not be better by training doctors to have this type of disregard for human life. So a few things to watch out for there.
0: And if you're a Christian, I think it's time to leave that Wisconsin school here. And sadly, we're seeing more and more of this across our country. A lot more schools across the West in general are basically trying to take this stance. And like Patricia was saying, they keep using these terms like, you know, the most vulnerable, saving lives. But whose lives are they talking about? Are they talking about the child's lives? No, of of course not. So you see that double standard there. They don't really mean it. They talk about health care. They talk about reproductive rights. Um, it just reminds me of, of Isaiah 520. It says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, right? So substitute that. Woe to those who call the destruction of little boys and girls health care. Woe to those who call the destruction of little boys and girls reproductive rights, right? It's like like Patricia saying. It's not health This is murder at simplest. We go back to the biblical worldview. Every single child is made in God's image. Jeremiah 1.5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So no child is ever a mistake. No boy or girl is ever an accident because they are preciously designed by God. And they're deserving of protection and precious because we get those answers from Genesis. And they talk a lot a bit about you know the the full term, the late term abortions. But actually, from the biblical worldview, again, we should be disgusted at any stage of development, no matter what the stage is, from fertilization onwards. It is a human life from that very beginning. So we should be fighting for that life from the very beginning as well. And just a reminder too, even uh, they talk about the post Roe world. Roe v. Wade was the, uh, uh, the the infamous court case that was struck down not too long ago. It's just Reminder that this war is not over. Right there's a there's a war on the preborn that's happening. It's continuing to rage, um, no longer at the federal level, but now it's on the state level. We're seeing more and more states starting to buy into this now, actually taking these so-called reproductive rights and putting them into their state constitutions. We just saw that in Ohio recently. So again, uh, it's just a wake up call for us Christians to get out there and keep defending the preborn.
2: And I just think, you know, this is a, a medical doctor. And you think about, she has an extremely v- low view of life. Because it's not like something magical happens as a baby passes from the womb into into the world, right? I mean, there isn't anything, doesn't how does that change who that human being is or who that person is? And yet, that's essentially what this doctor is saying. You know, two minutes prior to the woman giving birth, it's okay to kill that child. Two minutes after, it's not. And so that it's just, it's very inconsistent and problematic, and it does show that that low view, again, of life. And that's why we need to um, have compassion and help these mothers and these fathers and these children um, to be able to feel that they are supported, because a lot of times they are in challenging and difficult situations when they're having these children. That's why they're turning to this, turning to abortion, to help them know that there is a better way. Um, And and most importantly, obviously, to know um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is hope and Mm -hmm and help in that. And
0: if we take a step back and look at this issue, as well as the last one, with the transgenderism, this is actually just a symptom of the root cause, which is an abandonment of God's word. Again, God's word is where we find that foundation for the sanctity of life made in God's image that there's only two genders, one male, one female. Right. And so that's what we have to base ourselves on.
2: Right. Yes. Yeah. All right, religious nuns, n o n e s, right, in America, who they are and what they believe. So this group has actually been talked about for quite a while, but they weren't really a significant part of um, who was being surveyed. In other words, it wasn't wasn't it was pretty low percentage. But now there's about 28 percent of U.S. adults um, are religiously unaffiliated, and so they're either atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular. And so a lot of these are from the um, Gen Z, although not exclusively, but Gen Z and millennial um, age groups. And it's, it's really interesting to me as I read this article, kind of going through all these statistics, is that they're really just, apath- they're almost just really very apathetic, right? It, they almost don't want to commit to anything. Well, I don't want to commit to their being a God, but I don't want to commit to their not being a God. <laughs> I'll just kind of play the middle somehow or whatever, and just be very apathetic in their views of God overall.
1: Right. And it's it's tempting to say, well, if they're religious nuns, they must not have religion. But that's not really the case, right? Everybody has some sort of worldview, even if they don't recognize it, for answering those big picture questions. Um, and in, in a lot of cases, if they're kind of acting like they can pick and choose what sets of beliefs they want and what they want to be true. They're basically just acting like their own gods who can define truth for themselves and the idol or the self is a very hard idol for people to let go of so I think that we're only going to be seeing this increase.
0: Yes, whenever you hear someone say, I don't have a religion, that's really just a fancy way of saying that you're a humanist. Anytime you elevate man's authority as the ultimate, you are basically a humanist. That is the humanistic beliefs there. And so within this survey uh, they ask all of these uh, nuns and by the way it's N-O-N-E Yes, not N-U-N-S in case you guys are wondering so not Catholic nuns but uh, religious nuns meaning they don't have any so-called religions uh, in this survey they have all these so- certain beliefs you know they believe in another higher power they say maybe religion does some harm maybe it does some good uh, they reject certain ideas but uh, the, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary actually defines religion as this. It says a cause, a principle, or system of beliefs held to with ardor and faith. So that means anytime someone claims to not be religious but then makes judgments about religion has already made a religious statement, right? In other words, claims that they're not religious actually is very religious. And that's really the, the takeaway here.
2: And it's interesting, because these young people, too, what they find, you know, when I was talking about their being apathetic, they're less likely to vote, they're less likely to do volunteer work, they're less likely to be engaged um, in, a, you know, in, civil, in, you know, what we would call civil matters and things. They're just not, it's like they're just not engaged in life, basically. Um, and, and I think it's, again, it's that idea, if you teach children that they're nothing more then highly evolved palm scum, basically, then is it, and there's essentially no meaning and purpose in life, this is the outcome of it. Then they don't care about other people. They don't even care about themselves hardly, um, much less anyone else. So they're just not even going to participate um, in society. And what I thought was interesting, too, is it, these religiously, they say religiously unaffiliated, but like Patricia said, they are. <laughs> they're still <laughs> claiming, that they have a set of beliefs, but they are more spiritual. So they will define themselves as being more, more spiritual than other um, generations, even to the point of like believing that uh, animals have spirits and even assigning, you know, we've seen cases where they've assigned personhood to like lakes and streams. And it's sort of like this panentheistic view where God is in everything.
1: Yeah, for sure. And one thing I also kind of noticed is how a lot of these people who uh, don't identify as being religious When they were asked, why are you not religious? Quite a large percentage of them said that it was because they either dislike religious organizations or they've had bad experiences with religious people. So, I mean, it's it's always tragic when we see uh, professing Christians who are not living according to a biblical worldview and how that uh, affects the credibility mm-hmm. of the Christian faith. But um, is a message true or false because of the type of people communicating it or because uh, they're not acting consistently with their beliefs? No. So you need to judge Christianity on its consistent application, as I've heard it said, not its misapplication. Mm-hmm. Uh Given that God's word is the Bible and it is true, you don't want to dismiss that, those eternal implications, mm-hmm. because you've had a bad experience with someone.
0: Yeah, it's something I hear all the time. If you ever do any street evangelism, that is the number one common objection I always hear. You know, I had a bad experience with this or that with the church or whatnot, but like Patricia was saying, take that to its logical conclusion. So you're saying that you had a bad experience, therefore Christianity is not true or, or God is not real. So you see that logical inconsistency there. And one of the things they also say here um, in terms of these nuns, these non-believers, they say most nuns say they were raised in, in the religion, usually Christianity, which actually just reminds us, we have a, a, a book series called Already Gone in it, it talks about that—that that really that necessity for parents to be raising their children in the admonition and instruction of the Lord so that way uh, they have the answers that they need. And so one of the things what we've been noticing in our culture is maybe a generation ago, you used to hear a lot of people, uh, they would be atheistic, they would have a lot of more atheistic beliefs. But nowadays, you talk to people, they kind of have this more spiritual sort of, you know, I sense there's a higher power up there. So you see this real spiritual need that's out there from a lot of the the next generation. And... Of course, God's Word, we have the answer for that. We have that. So let's make sure that we continue. That should motivate us to continue to preach the gospel to these people.
2: And I always encourage you know, parents and uh, grandparents and Sunday school teachers, pastors, we have to be intentional about um, equipping the next generation. We can't just hope they'll catch it um, by going to church on Sunday morning or through um, even you know, some sort of curriculum that we might be using with them. We just have to be intentional, even in, not in those formal teaching moments, but even in the informal one, to really keep bringing everything back to the Word of God and helping them understand that biblical worldview, understanding we call here the seven C's of history, which really help us understand that foundational importance of Genesis to the rest of the Bible, that it was created perfect, sin occurred, that's why things are bad, and that Jesus Jesus has come and is coming back again, and how all of that is connected. And it really gives them that framework for understanding the world that we live in and why it is the way that it is. So we just have to take, we have to play a very active role because they're getting hit with ideas from everywhere, especially social media, with this particular um, generation, with Gen Z. And so we really have to be intentional about training them and equipping them to combat that effectively. Mm -hmm. So that kind of goes into our next story as well. Nearly 30% of Gen Z adults identify as LGBTQ, which is by far, um, by far, you can see this um, statistic here, much, much more. It's double what the millennials are, and obviously a lot more than the older um, generation. And so um, so again I think as Patricia was talking about they're they're kind of choosing to define themselves. You know, they're choosing based on their experiences, based on their own ideas what things should look like and even even down to their sexuality. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And another thing that stood out to me is because we're seeing this in the younger generation. I, I say Gen Z, I, I just feel compelled to. <laughs> as a Canadian, I have to. I have to. Anyway, so they're looking at Gen Z, and, and this one lady who is part of, um, she's the president for the Human Rights Campaign, which is the country's largest uh, LGBTQ advocacy group. This article says. And she was saying that uh, Gen Z is a force for change. So she really wants to recruit this next generation to be pushing these ideas. And that is what anyone who wants to take over and transform the culture has to do. They have to get the next generation. So I've said before, but it's, it's just such an important point to remember is that Christians need to be at least as intentional about discipling the next generation as the secularists are.
0: Amen. It's actually no surprise to you. There's a lot of young people out there. They feel pressure to fit in. And typically when they have these uh, so-called LGBTQ desires, when they come out of the closet. They get a lot of attention, a lot of popularity, a lot of support, a lot of love, a lot of care. Um, that's what a lot of these young people are needing that they're reaching out for. They're reaching out for that love. But here's the thing. But the most loving thing we can do is not to affirm their sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And God's word is the truth, right? So it doesn't just contain truth, but it is the truth. It is our standard. And 1 Corinthians 6, just earlier in that book as well, uh, Paul actually lists many of the sins that the Corinthians practice, including including homosexuality. And in verse 11, he says, and such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. So if, if someone's maybe washing and maybe you're struggling with these type of emotions here, just know that there is no sin that's too great for the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. Once you're cleansed, you're no longer defined by that sin. So for those who trust in Christ for salvation, they become a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5:17. If anyone is in Christ, he has a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And God, he promises the strength for victory over sin, which includes homosexuality for those that are in Christ. And that's really the message that we should be preaching, that we should be extending out to these people that are struggling with these LGBTQ emotions.
2: Okay, life on earth may have first sparked in shallow soda lakes. All right, so this is just a complete story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's, We all were talking about it beforehand. We're like, okay, so this is just a bunch of storytelling. Like, well, you know, maybe, because they're, they're trying to solve a lot of problems, basically, for life beginning. Because obviously life is extremely complex. And so to think that it evolved by random chance from non-living things is a huge step of faith, right? And, and, and hard to imagine. And so they're always trying to come up with ways to basically, um, have it, have everything it needs to be able to evolve. But, um, I'm a geneticist and so I've studied DNA a lot. And so it's one thing to be able to form like simple amino acids, which are the components of protein, or even maybe some of the very simple, um, maybe some of the parts of like DNA or RNA. Okay maybe there are some ways in which that can be done, all right, naturally that those things can occur. But, there's, but they're not together in any meaningful way, right? Because complexity requires information, and information requires an information giver, which is an intelligent designer, to put it together in a way that can make um, an organism, a living organism. It's not just as simple as having the elements. I would say it's kind of like if you took all the ingredients for a cake, right, and you just dumped them all into a bowl. You didn't measure anything. You just dumped them all in, and you put it in the oven. You're not getting a cake. You're getting a mess. Um, Because it requires intelligence. It requires a recipe in the right amounts, in the right times, and all of those to get something meaningful out of it. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And whenever you see these types of articles that say, well, life could have evolved um, spontaneously this way, it's worth thinking through a few points. Um, So a lot of these are done in certain uh, laboratory environments that require a lot of human intervention. In this case, though, they weren't even testing if you could make Elements, they just like went out and found a lake with high phosphates. Mm-hmm. So then they're like, Well, this could get over the problem of um, not having enough like phosphates to right. be able to get life to get going, but that is not your only problem. So if you want to make life from non-life, just think about some of the steps involved. You have to not only get amino acids, but then pick the right ones. Living things use uh, only about 20, but there's like 300 different types out there. So you have to pick the right ones. You have to pick the right kind, who's right-handed and left-handed. You need the left-handed ones. You need to bond enough of them together correctly to actually get the length of a protein, which isn't that easy to do in laboratory conditions um, under just like natural uh, simulations. You have to get them ordered in a sequence to make a functional protein, which requires that information. You have to get the protein to fold into the right secondary and uh, tertiary and quaternary levels, which usually requires other proteins helping out. Uh, You need RNA and DNA because proteins don't store the information for their maintenance and cell maintenance and and replication, so you need DNA for that. And then you need a genetic code (laughs) to be able to translate the DNA into the proteins. And that requires proteins as well, by the way. And then even if you can get one cell, you've only gotten one cell. It has mm-hmm. to not die. And you have yep. to be able to evolve it into other things. So it's not just phosphates. That's the And problem. that's
2: the simple explanation. The simple <laughs> so you know, yeah. that's a very simplistic explanation. So you're saying it.
0: their findings just fell flat. flat. Yes. So the there we go. Never yeah. mind. Sorry. So I just wrote, here we go again, right? They're always struggling to find really? these answers because, of course, they have the wrong starting point. They're going to be asking the wrong questions. They're going to lead to wrong conclusions. And that's really the base. Um, and, and plus, a lot of biogenesis says life only comes from life, right? So I mean, scientifically speaking, life cannot come from non-life, of course. And, so, um, and we also don't see any, any increase in genetic information or anything like that. That's, that's right here. And one of the interesting things that they also say here is they're always talking about, you know, um, you know how did life evolve on Earth? But they're also talking about how did life evolve elsewhere in the universe, they talk about Mars, they talk about Venus, you know, maybe they find liquid water, they find the building blocks, maybe they'll find life out there. And that's one of the things that I experienced when I was in the NASA industry for uh, for, for multiple years, is that, that is always the number one goal with all of these different missions, all of these space programs are always trying to find life in outer space. That's really their ultimate goal. What they're trying to do is they're trying to explain the past, but they're leaving God's word out of it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Another thing I'll mention quickly is something to watch out for in these studies is often they'll use something called an appeal to possibility. So it's like, this could have happened therefore it did happen mm-hmm. so even if they say well we can get these building blocks under certain conditions that doesn't mean that's actually what happened back at the beginning that's assuming those conditions that they think happened actually happened and that it's actually possible so
0: yeah and speaking on that they actually quote this distracts me up it says this environment should occur on the early earth and probably on other planets because it's just a natural outcome of the way that planetary surfaces are made and how water chemistry works in other words it just so happened right that's it our is answer it is. just what it is <laughs>
2: Does not work well. All right. Living fossil lizards are constantly evolving. You just can't see it. Okay. No, they're not evolving. Okay. They're just varying slightly um, from generation to generation or within populations, but they're not becoming anything other than what what God designed them to be, which is lizards. So we see this word evolving used a lot. And again, it's to try to help the general public believe in those ideas um, when really what you're seeing is just uh, variation within population. So what they found is that they're they're making the claim, or not making the claim, but they're talking about the fact that certain things that we find in the fossil record, like the coelacanth, okay, when we find that fish today, it's almost identical to what it is in the fossil record, yet that's supposedly 410 million year old fossil. So it hasn't changed in 410 million years which is kind of strange for evolution, right? Because evolution's idea that things are constantly evolving, going from one form to another. So how could it be the same today as it was then? They call it the stasis or the, the sameness, basically, paradox. And so they say, well, you know, on the short term, basically you might see some changes within populations, but over a long period of time, they just kind of cancel each other out. And as it turns out, they just stay the same. <laughs> that doesn't help evolution. years. That... <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It really reminded me
1: of when I was taking, I went and took um, evolutionary biology classes in third year and fourth year university because I wanted to learn the best arguments for evolution. And every single time my textbooks gave examples of evolution we can see happening, it was always this, what they call evolution, but in the sense of variation within a kind of living thing God created based on the loss of information that was already existing before. So um, they don't tell you in this article or in a lot of those textbooks, they don't necessarily remind you that natural selection can only select from what's already there. It doesn't add new information. Uh, People have to look to things like mutations to get new variability, but it's usually a corruption of information that already existed, and that is what we're seeing here. Lizards Mm -hmm. producing more lizards, Lizards variation within a kind.
0: Yep, lizards remain lizards. And one of the things you always see with a lot of these evolutionary articles. You always see a lot of what's called reification fallacies. They'll say evolution can do this. Evolution can perform things. Evolution can do all these wonderful uh, aspects, but evolution can't do anything. Evolution is basically an idea, a concept, right? It's what these evolutionists are interpreting through the day. That's what they're reporting here. You also see a lot of what's called equivocation fallacies. They equivocate on that word evolution, uh, like Patricia was saying, you know, talking about natural selection, trying to equate that with the molecules demand evolution. So you see that bait and switch all the way through. Um, and of course, we won't, we don't deny the animals change, right? Animals should change. Like uh, Dr. Perdomo was saying, we have variety within kinds, but it's impossible for one kind to change to another kind, right? We don't see that increase in genetic information. And so again, at the the end of the day, lizards remain lizards. I think we need to scale back I think it's really cool that
2: God designed populations or designed organisms with the ability. I think it's good to keep a lot of variety in different traits, like maybe long legs, short legs, or something like that, or medium legs. Because depending on environmental pressures and things that are happening, one might be more advanced advantageous than the other. So sometimes the populations, they'll select for the longer legs, and so they'll more of the organisms will go that way. But then they still have some with short legs or medium legs, so that if the environment changes or something happens, they can go back the other way. And so they're just sort of oscillating, they're not really directional, they're not going in a particular direction from one kind to another, they're just varying within the kind, and that's what we need in a post-fall, post-flood world for organisms to be able to survive. So that's a good thing, and we need to understand it more from a creation perspective, even what that design is, and what that how what that looks like. Yeah.
0: So from a biblical worldview, this is expected. From an evolutionary worldview, it's really a paradox for them.
2: All right. This next article: Does science cause Christians to deconvert? Now, this is from um, a website for an old Earth creation organization called Reasons to Believe. Um, so they believe that the universe and the Earth is billions of years old, just like secular science says. But they also try to basically merge that um, with biblical creation, which it doesn't. Okay, not at all. It doesn't it does not fit with the um, it does not fit with the biblical account of creation. But what they're trying to say in this. article, article as they're trying to say, well, a lot of people that, that are supposedly Christians or professing Christians at least have deconstructed it now. They've decided to walk away from the faith. And one of the main reasons appears to be science. And so it, they, they really set it up as a science versus faith or science versus God kind of um, dichotomy. But as we talk a lot about here at Answers in Genesis, that is not the issue. It's not science versus the Bible, okay? That's not what it is at all. It's faith in God versus faith in man. Do we believe what God has said about the um, what has happened in the past in his word? Or do we believe what man thinks about the past who wasn't there? That's really the question. And we use that worldview or that lens to interpret the evidence that we have, the science, and to help us understand what has happened in the past and so um, that that's really what the situation is it really and, and that's the problem right if we're promoting the idea that it's science versus faith then I can see why a lot of Christians are maybe deconverting or whatever they want to call it deconstructing because they see it at odds but I'm a Christian I'm a um, creation scientist and it's not at odds at all right It's in perfect alignment with what God's word says. Yeah
1: you mentioned equivocation for the last article did you see that going on in here at all?
0: Well a little bit quite a few times.
1: And so what
0: was that about Yeah so over and over again this is quite a, quite a long article here so obviously we can't do we don't have time to go all of it but Throughout this whole thing, this author basically fails to define what is actually meant by science, right? So in terms of science, they talk about, you know, evolution, millions of years. And then they equate that with what we call observational science. They equate that with what's called STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. They're saying that the math and the, and the engineering and the technology, the science we use for that is the same as the evolution, millions of years. And so throughout that, it's very sneaky that the way that they uh, kind of equivocate that. So they're basically saying that, uh, you know, if, if Christians can't buy into all the so-called, I forget how they said, in here, basically all the conclusive evidence for science, right? Evolution, millions of years, and how do you train up the next generation of the scientists and the technology, the engineers, and the mathematicians, of course. And so you see that equivocation. Um, but obviously, I think a lot of this basically just reaffirms something we say here at our ministry all the time: reinterpreting Genesis actually just unlocks the door to doubting the rest of God's word. So if you can't trust Genesis, why trust John three sixteen? Why trust Romans ten nine? Right. So if the Bible's geology can't be trusted, why trust its theology. It's, all, or it's either all trustworthy, it's all authoritative, or it's not at all. And so we're seeing that. And it's actually interesting. I actually agreed on a lot of different points that this author made in terms of you know making sure we care for the next generation, make sure we equip the next generation with the tools that they need to help them, equip them, to help them defend their faith. Um, But at the same time, I I don't agree with the solution there. The solution is not to affirm these humanistic beliefs about the unobserved past. The solution is this. We've got to be teaching Christians how to think with a truly biblical worldview. And that biblical worldview has to be founded on the solid rock of God's word.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the author is unfortunately basically saying that Christians need to be equipped, and the way to do that is to teach them to compromise. But I can guarantee you that teaching people to compromise is not going to give them a stronger faith. There are absolutely fantastic scientific reasons and a lot of other reasons, too, to stand on the authority of God's word without compromise. And we have lots of great resources to help with that. With zero compromise. Yeah. With zero compromise.
2: And I should say, too, that there's a lot of theological problems, too, with the idea of old earth or theistic evolution that God used evolution, because every single one of those means that there you have death before sin occurred, right? And that is a very core theological issue that's problematic. And then what does that do to the gospel? What did Jesus die for? You know, and, and so it just creates a lot of problems if we just don't, if we don't take God at his word, right? Mm-hmm. And what, he said in his word, and so um, we would agree with the article that a lot of young people are not being educated on this properly, right? We would agree with that, and that that's a major problem that pastors and youth pastors aren't talking about these issues of origins, and they really, really need to. We just we wouldn't agree with <laughs> we that's wouldn't agree we with we them it. on what yeah. the right on what the right thing is, but um, we want to help young people know that they can they can be scientists, and we can view science from a yeah. biblical worldview. And one of the ways that we're doing that here at Answers in Genesis, coming up later this year. We have our annual STEM um, challenge that we have going on. Uh, There's the top prize is $5,000. And so um, we want to encourage groups of young people um, and the high school ages to basically sign up for this. Um, And you'll be doing a wind turbine project and you'll be coming here to the ARC Encounter and presenting that. And there's other great um, awards as well. And so uh, anyways, you can check that out. It's November 6th of this year. And uh, you can register your team today. Just get on the ARC Encounter or Creation Museum Museum website, click on the education tab. We also have a brand new book coming out by Martin Iles. He is the new executive CEO of Answers and Genesis, and it's called Who Am I? Solving the Identity Puzzle. All right, so you know this is, we've talked about it today during Answers News. This is a Huge issue in the culture today. And what I really appreciate about this book, again, it starts with God's word. What does God's word say about these things and letting God define who we are okay. as man and woman? We also have some great resources. Patricia, why don't you talk about your book? Right. So, this is uh, Prepare to Thrive. So, talking about equipping the next generation, this
1: is a survival guide for Christian students. And it's especially geared towards students who are going through secular education. So, this is to equip them with the foundations they need to keep their biblical worldview strong and to think critically and biblically about what they're learning in their classes. And then Rob, you want to talk about that one? We're
0: Religions and Cults. This is our volume three. It's part of a three-part series, a really powerful resource you guys can get a hold of. So we talked a little bit about the atheistic, the humanistic religion. So if you guys like to learn more about that, um, you can actually get this on our website. And by the way, real quick before I forget, uh, shout out to Everett and Susan. So thank you for coming to my Discover event the other day. So hope you guys are having a great day.
2: Let me talk uh, some about the abortion issue today. So uh, myself and a colleague wrote this book called Crafted by God from Fertilization to Birth. And so it's a really great um, book for young young people, for children to look at. And it's got a lot of really cool interactive things teaching them about the value of life um, and the importance of being made in the image of God, regardless of ability, regardless of ethnicity and all those things. And then also coming up, Oh, we have so much stuff going on. Oh my goodness. The Answers for Women um, conference is coming up here in just a few short months. Um, We still have room in our conference that's April 1st through the 3rd. We've already sold out our April 4th through the 6th conference, which is a great problem to have, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Uh, So we opened up another conference. We are also live streaming this. So if for some reason you can't be here in person, we are doing a live stream of it. And so you can go to answersforwomen.org for more information on um, that conference and find out many other conferences that we have here at answers in Genesis. All right, we are out of time for today, so we'll see you back here next Wednesday.
0: God bless.